Hey everybody, welcome back to the Astrophotography Podcast. My name's Steve, I'm from Ontario Telescope and Accessories. Good to be back with all of you beautiful people out there. I know it's been so long since I've put another podcast out. Um, it's just been a crazy, crazy year. Uh, I hope everyone out there is listening. Uh, that is, well, I hope everyone is safe, that is listening, and uh, doing well and healthy and enjoying the night sky and getting some great images. Uh, but today we're gonna change it up a little bit. Um, we're not gonna be talking about astrophotography at night we're going to be talking about astrophotography during the day and doing solar imaging and I've got the best person to talk about solar imaging with me today from the UK Gary Palmer Gary's a good friend of mine uh, we actually have been working together on some uh, courses that we've been doing we can talk about that another time though but Gary welcome to the program thank you very much for spending time with me today hi Steve hi everyone hope you're all well so, so Gary and I want to talk about solar and uh, solar imaging, and there's all different types of solar imaging or different ways to get into it. And you don't have to spend a lot of money. You don't have to have the really expensive hydrogen off the scope. Um, uh, there are options for you. You can get into white light uh, solar imaging um, with with a like a batter film type filter or a glass solar filter uh, and a high speed camera. Uh, you can use a wedge, you can use some cool devices called a quark or a quantum, um, and or a full-blown hydrogen off the scope, and there's different wavelengths. So, Gary, what you know, why don't you walk us through, like, if somebody wanted to get into solar imaging, what can they start off with? Like, what, what would be the easiest way to do it? The easiest thing is, is a, a solar filter, uh, uh, either a film or a, a solar glass filter that goes over the front of the telescope. So that, that's the easiest thing. There, there are two types of solar films, so you have to be careful. Uh, one's 0.5 and one's, I think it's 3, um, 0.3. And they're densities, they're how bright they are. So the, the 0.3 really is for imaging, and generally the uh, 5 is for uh, visual, and uh, use them with an eyepiece. But you can buy the film on a roll, um, and you can make the filter yourself. You can just make a cardboard surround and, and make your own filter. If you're going to do it a little bit more professional and, and you want the filter to last a longer time, then I would be buying one of the glass ones. Um, but you, you can get some stunning detail. While they don't show prominences, they do show uh, tons of detail in and around sunspots. You can get a lot of granulation on the surface and that can look really nice if you're getting close to it so it, really if you're going to be getting into white light solar imaging it, it's when you want the sun to be more active so you can see the, the sunspots and, and the detail around it if there's no activity, yeah and, and we are seeing that now you, okay. you're starting to see the activity in the sun um certainly across most of the networks facebook and so on you're starting to see a lot more solar pictures 
over the last couple of months and that's because the sun's coming out of its quiet period solar minimum and it you're starting to see more and more sunspots appearing so from now on really it's going to get more active and in that white light the more sunspots there are the more fun you can have yeah so so somebody buys a uh buy some film and they make a filter or they buy a solar filter and there's a number of them that are commercially available uh, out there uh, from various manufacturers um, and uh, it, so getting one shouldn't be bad you can probably pick it up for for a hundred dollars or so depending on the size of your scope um, and, and then you're going to need a camera uh, obviously to take these images now we're not talking about using a DSLR camera we're talking no, about you, using you can like, use DSLR okay. I mean when I first started out in solar um, fast cameras and, and anything to do with astrophotography was quite expensive. So I think most people do start on that uh, DSLR route. And in, in white light, you can still take some quite good images with it. It will be a bit distant in a sense. So the larger aperture, the closer you're going to get to the sun. But there's nothing to stop you using a Barlow. You know, you can use a two or three times Barlow with the DSLR. And you're just taking multiple shots. Uh, that's the idea is is to take as many shots as possible and you might want to use um, something like a trigger or control the camera on a computer so as an entry way into it uh, um, you can use the DSLR so you wouldn't be taking a movie with it then you would be doing individual shots and stacking them up you can yeah you can do individual shots or you can you can do a movie you can okay. use something like um Backyard EOS, or there's a couple of other programs, and they will record using the live view on the camera. Yes, yeah. Um, and then you could use uh, PIPP, something like that, to convert the movie into an AVI okay. and stack it like a conventional uh, planetary video in Auto Stacker or Registax. Okay, so so if somebody has just a DSLR, and I don't mean it as if, as if it's nothing, having a D, if someone has a DSLR. And they they purchase a uh, white light filter, um, and they've got a refractor. They're good to go. But they, you don't need to have like an an Apo imaging refractor, right? No, I, I mean you can use a, a doublet. Um, you can use all sorts of stuff, but you you can use SETs and um, Newtonians with the film or a glass filter because it, it blocks the energy coming down inside. Okay. So it blocks ninety nine point nine percent of the energy the only the only question mark i have over the film is up when it gets a couple of months old you, you really need to check it each time that you get it out that's the key thing just in case you've damaged it while packing it away certainly if it's a larger size there's more chance of that happening so so you're looking for like pinholes or, or tears yeah so like don't that. look up at the sun through it um okay. you know just look to the left or to the right of the sun and um, you'll soon see any pinholes in it. If there's any pinholes in it, then it, it's a case of scrapping it. Yeah, throw it away. It's not worth uh, no. damaging your eyes or, or your equipment over. And I'm sure you can very easily damage your equipment with, with the energy of the sun being concentrated. Yeah, um, and you can. The, the thing that you can normally end up damaging is the mirror housing on DSLRs. So uh, they're all plastic inside. Right. So while the actual sensor might survive, the uh, mirror housing all melts and there's all sorts of problems. That's not good. So so that that's a great way to get into into imaging um, the sun to start off. 
it with, with the DSLR, but if you had a high speed planetary camera, yeah, uh, uh, preferably mono over color. Yeah, I, I mean the same again with white light. It's not so specific because okay. you're picking up uh, light right the way through the spectrum uh, with white light. You're picking up a bit of everything. The color camera will work and it, it is fairly sharp, but mono is always sharper. It, it's more uh, defined in the structures. But I've done some very very good imaging even on real cheap basic webcams that we've taken apart before. Okay. Okay, and you're recording that as you're, so you. Put the yeah, you, you in, just set that up movie. to try and record it as a um, an AVI. Okay. If it is a dedicated uh, astronomy camera, uh, planetary camera, then you you can record it as an SER file. Okay. And SER files always work better, uh, certainly on Windows PCs, basically because um, the computer doesn't see a limit on the file then. I see. Whereas an AVI file, um, depending on the camera size, you, you can end up with the file being too big. So really, once it gets over about three and a half gigabytes, somewhere around there, then there's a chance the computer might not recognize it. Okay. So, so And that's quite easy to do with solar, because when we're doing planetary, we're normally very, very small. Yes. And the image size is very small, whereas on solar, we have a tendency to use the full resolution of the camera. Okay, yeah, because I understand, and and uh, then we take that into some software, obviously, and and process it through, um, stack up the images as as you would with. Yeah, I mean, I generally use Auto Stacker. There's a couple of versions. You got Auto Stacker two and three. Um, I have found uh, it, certainly if you get a bit of a wobbly sky or high atmospheric problems. Auto stack at two, slightly more stable. Um, but yeah, once that that uh, you run it through there, you select you know roughly how many frames. So if we recorded a thousand frames, we might stack a quarter of those. Um, and then once that's finished, we run them into Registax and just sharpen them a little bit. Okay. Yeah, so, using the Wavelets process. So that, that that you know that's a good way to get into solar um, astrophotography with white light and I've seen some fantastic white light images and uh, myself um, you, you can find them online uh, Gary as you said they've been posted up uh, you can do a simple Google search and you can see some some amazing pictures too and and it's quite amazing from my opinion it's quite amazing some of the detail that you can get with just white light uh, around the sunspots but then if you wanted to get into the prominences if you wanted to see other wavelengths of light you're gonna to have to start getting in to get more dedicated equipment like a quark yeah. right or a dedicated solar camera uh, sorry, sorry solar telescope um, yeah I think really your cheapest way in the, the cheapest dedicated telescope at the moment is the Daystar 60 millimeter and the solar scale yeah the yeah. solar scale and I think um, that th that's probably around the cheapest model on the market Mm -hmm. But you're quite limited uh, on your size. Yeah, so the, the sizes of the prominences. But some people like imaging the full disk of the sun. Okay. They're not really interested in getting in close. They want a whole picture of the sun. And that sort of telescope works quite well. Um, you know, cost-wise, it's fairly reasonable. Um and you, you can get some nice detail, and you can still bolo those. You, you can put a bolo onto the camera, and, and you can bring it a little bit closer if you want. 
but you will be missing quite a lot of detail with that um, for that aperture right and that resolution so most people then start looking around at something like maybe a quark yep. um, because that's going to get you in a lot closer to the sun um, and probably using it on something like an 80 millimeter refractor to start with and again it can be a doublet triplet um, generally air-spaced ones are better um, some of the older ones are, are oil space so you can find the oil heats up in the telescope in between the lenses mm -hmm. but the, um, the the thing with the quark is it's got a 4.2 telecentric barlow in it okay so a lot of people that go oh I've, i know i've got a old skywash 120 millimeter i'm going to put it onto that and that that's okay but you're forgetting how close you're going to get to the sun so when they're looking through the filter, they're finding that it, it's quite hard to focus. Okay. And that's why I generally say an 18 millimeter is a really good starting point. Um, you, you're going to get a nice definition on anything visual. And depending on what camera you use, you can get in really close, uh, even on an 18 millimeter. Yeah. And, and, and what's interesting with the quarks is that they, they come in a variety of different flavors. So uh, yeah. there's one for that's really good for prominences. And then the chromosphere model, which will give you more surface detail, but you can still see prominences with that one, right? Yeah, I mean, I think most people generally just use the chromosphere model. Yes. The, yeah, the, the prominence model's okay, but you, you get a good balance of everything on the chromosphere model. Um, and, you know, the, yeah, some of the fine stuff might be harder to get with it but generally that's down to your scene conditions not necessarily the actual model of quark okay um and once you sort of move on from the the quarks on the hydrogen alpha side um you're, you're into a dedicated scope so probably a little bit bigger than the 60 millimeter um from daystar but you've got other manufacturers you've got lunt you've got coronado and so on um there's some other manufacturers building some new stuff at the moment so that'll probably be out late this year or early next year I, I think i know what you're talking about as well i've seen some stuff but I, yeah i can't talk about it right now either <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have insider information sometimes right yes yeah, yeah. that's it and, and it's good to see that other people are taking on board how popular it is solar in the last 10 years has got really popular yeah um first reason is is it's warm Yep. Yeah, you're not yes. sitting outside freezing <laughs> and, uh, you know, chattering away and uh, that. You can do your solar and you can go off and you can do other things in the day. Yep. Sometimes it's really nice if you're using hydrogen alpha to watch the prominences and, and do something like a little bit of a time lapse on them. So record something every, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. Okay. And you've got sort of. 30, 40 videos there and you process them all up into stills and then put them into a little bit of time-lapse software. Mm -hmm. And that can really show you the movement. And I think that's what we forget is the sun is is a dynamic object. Every time you look at it, it's different. It's changed. That, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. I never really gave that a lot of thought. Um, but you can look. You could look at it every day and, and make an observation um, yeah, every day is a different observation, which is you, uh, you can. Uh, and I mean, even hourly, uh, if we get into, you know, things like ejections, like solar flares and that as the sun gets more active, um, yeah. you know, it, it's consistently changing. It takes eight minutes roughly for the light to get here. 
Um, but our eyes don't look at it in that sense of it changing. We, we have to sort of go away for a little bit and then walk back to it or do something like a time lapse. And then we really pick up the changes that are going on. Right. And, and they are fantastic to look at. They're, they're, they're stunning uh, to see the changes in it and the, the forces that are involved in it. Yeah. When you, you see a couple of these prominences and they're sort of 10, 15 times the size of the Earth and that's just on the edge of the sun. Well, and that, that's something that I've always uh, kind of looked at in awe myself when I've seen some images posted up of a prominence and something really wicked, whether it's something that's shooting straight out or you get like the... Um, where it starts to form a bridge or yeah. like an arc and a roll type of, there's, I know there's different types of prominences. Um, uh, and then they, they show the earth next to it as a comparison. And, and, and uh, um, you know, it's amazing to see. I, and I feel really kind of small at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> right. It, um, it, it is. And yeah. I think when you see a prominence, people really don't or, or any solar feature really people don't realize how big they are yeah you know there's no real reference to how big these are in a sense even when you've got a little earth in the picture next to it it, it still takes some uh, imagination to work out how big these things are yeah um but the, the main thing is is they're changing all the time so you can have some you know some really good fun you, you can image it in the morning you can go off, do something, come back in the afternoon, have another look, and it's all changed again. And you can you do that. This is the thing. You might, yeah. you know, sunspots, they can suddenly start appearing as like a pore. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the next day when you look, there's a full-blown sunspot sitting there. Well, I, now I was going to mention about sunspots too, because I, I remember seeing a time-lapse of uh, uh, a sunspot um, yep. over the course of, I, I think it was a few days, and it actually looked like it was... It was pretty large, and it looked like it was kind of splitting. Um, yeah, they, they, well, they have a light bridge normally, okay. and that's what makes it look like it's splitting. So somewhere there'd be a, a really bright, intense white line yeah. running across the image, um, uh, and that is a, a, what we call a light bridge. But they they do, they, they change shape all the time. They're, they're, they're evolving, um, and, and they come and go, so depending on where you are when you see it in its cycle. Yeah. And, and the sunspots are always nicer if they're closer to the center. Okay. So if you, it's nice to find one rotating onto the, the surface. So we're looking at sort of the left-hand side of the sun. Yeah. It's nice to see it actually pick one up there, a new sunspot. Right. But visually for actually looking at and for imaging, they're always best after about four days once they start getting to the center of the sun. Yeah. Who, who now? Sunspots have a designation to them, right? Yes. Who 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 makes that designation? I think it's NOAA. Okay. I think it's on the U.S. side uh, that that designate it, uh, if I remember rightly. But the the actual sunspots themselves, they normally have what they call a, an active region around them. Okay. So they're, they're designated with an AR number, right. and you can get active regions. They, they look uh, sort of white. Um, and you can um, you can get those with no sunspots in, yeah. So they they are still uh, have an AR designation, but they've actually got no sunspot in them. I see. Okay. Okay. So if if okay, there's white. We talked about white light. 
Um, yep. You can and you can do white light with a solar filter, or you can use a wedge. Yeah. Right. So the the, the solar wedges have become more popular. They expel all of the energy out of the underneath of them, so it's not a good idea to grab the underneath of them when they've been on the sun for quite a while. Yeah. Um, Speaking from I experience, think one of the other yes. things that's quite important that goes with these is maybe a solar finder. Um, yes, okay. and, and that's a little uh, like finder scope in a sense that goes onto your uh, telescope and it, it just aligns the sun through a, a little marker right. and it, it makes it really easy to find although the sun's a really big object uh, once you've got solar filters on it's not that easy to find in the sky right yeah so they're a really safe way of um, uh, locating the sun and getting it accurately uh, in the eyepiece or on the camera, yeah. and I, I've seen the, I've seen those made just with uh, um, you know people have made them up with some stiff cardboard. Yeah, and, or uh, the other one used to be you know the canisters that used to hold film. Yep. Yeah, they used to make them out of those by making a couple of pinholes in yeah. them. Yeah. For, yeah. For, that, for, that for those well. for those of you listening that don't know what film is, <laughs> uh, ask your parents. Um, uh, I, uh, my, my father worked at Kodak for 28 years. I spent a couple of summers there myself. I, I know what film canisters are. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen my fill of film canisters that last a lifetime. Believe me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they're a funny thing because they're yeah. quite useful and yet they're getting yeah. harder and harder to get hold of now. Yeah. So, but yeah, the, the white light wedge, uh, is a, an easier, more permanent way. In general, the wedge only works on a refractor. Okay. You have to think that um, if you start putting it on a Newtonian or uh, an SET, you've got your filters now on the back of the telescope, not on the front. Right. So the refractor works best with that. Um, you can also gain some more uh, detail in objects by using a continuum filter. Okay. And that's basically that, that's squeezing the band down of light in a sense. So it's removing some of the stuff that you don't need. That's the easiest way of putting it. And it, it gives your images a, a little bit more contrast. So maybe on the granulation, you'll see a lot more detail there. And you can use the continuum filter with the solar film or a glass front filter. They're, they're, they're quite good filters to use. Um, certainly make it more uh, visually interesting when you're, um, when you're imaging. But when you look through them, they, they look very green. Yeah. Yeah, so they, they do give the sun a green tint. I see. Uh, if you're using it visually, would you, would you say that there's any any limits to a size of uh, a refractor that that you could use, or, or what? No. What would you suggest? I mean, would if you're never needed? sure on uh, something, you can always stick a UVR cut filter on the front of it. But I've used wedges on uh, telescopes up to 180 millimeter. Oh wow! Um, and not really had any problems with them. Okay. You just have to remember that while every you try not to treat people as though they're stupid, you try to treat people like they've got common sense. And but you do have to be aware of how hot things are coming down that telescope. Right. So um, you know if you've got any feelings about the telescope might have plastic baffles in it, um, then it might not be suitable for solar. If you put a filter on the back of the telescope, it might burn the baffles that were inside the telescope by reflecting the light up. Okay. Um, 
if you're using your nighttime telescope, make sure all your cameras are covered. I know it sounds stupid, but your guide telescope and your guide camera is sitting there and your main telescope might be all uh, sorted out or maybe your finder scope. Make sure it's got a cap on it. Right. Um, quite easy to burn, burn yeah. yourself or um, accidentally shine the light in your eye as you're bending down. Yeah. The, the, the sun really is powerful like that. And another one that uh, crops up every now and then is people thinking they can use a nighttime hydrogen alpha filter for imaging. You, you can't. Um, they're not, uh, they haven't got any reflective coatings on them to take the energy away from the sun. Okay. So you'll probably find that you will just split the filter. You'll you just hear a pop, yeah, and the, the filter will split. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's more about your own safety at the end of the day. Um, they're, they're just not going to work. Yeah. That, that's the easiest uh, way I put. And I, I remember, I remember, actually, I had one, um, and, and because I've got uh, kids, I, I, I tossed it. I, I had one of the old screw-in filters. Uh, yep. solar filters that would go onto an eyepiece and i know that they were notorious for getting hot and, and cracking as well and uh yeah um uh, can cause permanent uh damage uh if you were to look through but it, it it might be you know when you're changing a filter over it might be that you you've got a cork and you've got a wedge and you you swap them over right um you, you have to bear in mind anything sitting near the back end of that telescope when you take the filter off yeah yeah, yeah, he's going to catch fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> there's, there's no other way of putting it. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I think of like having a, a magnifying glass and going after ants, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And, yeah. and you know, there's some serious energy there, yes. and it, it's just sort of being sensible. Also, remember, you know, lots of people do solar for events. You know, you might have eclipses coming up and things like that. Yeah, and I think the one. Uh, thing that I never really like at events is what we call projection, um, where people project it onto a floor or onto a wall. Okay, yeah, I've seen and, that. You know that that can work well, but you've got to remember that kids think that a telescope um, is there to be looked through, and if you're using it for a projection and somebody looks through it, it's just going to burn their eyes straight away. So it's just being a little bit more sensible with it um and thinking about what you're doing or who's around you when when you're actually doing it yeah but with the right equipment with all of the filters or you know front or back mounted filters they're, they're really safe and they're good fun yeah um best camera in your opinion for solar imaging you've got two on the market um one's the 174 and one's the um 178 they're probably the two most popular cameras for solar. Okay. The 174 is, uh, is a very good and very fast camera, but it's very distant, so it can make objects look quite small, okay. uh, unless you're on really large aperture telescopes. Whereas the 178, it might be a little bit slower, but it can get you in a lot closer, and that makes it a, a, a lot more interesting. But you, we use a, a thing which we call ROI, and that cuts down the area of the sensor we're using. Mm -hmm. So if we don't need the area where there's no detail, then we really we're cropping that off in a sense. Right. And when we put the camera into our ROI, it speeds up. So it gets very fast. And even with the um, 178s, you can get them up into 80 frames a second on solar quite happily. Um, and, and they produce some really nice images. Uh, 
today I was using uh, 183 mono. Okay. Uh, that that's generally classed as a deep sky. But again, if you use it in ROI, it picks itself up and it's sitting there quite happy at 60 frames a second. So you don't have to go absolutely dedicated planetary, but my main two for solar would be the um, 183 and the 174. Okay. You also have to think about tilting the sensor. Newton's rings, quite often a problem with solar imaging where you get some form of banding or circular patterns. And that's caused by just putting the camera straight in the filter. So different companies now make um, interference eliminators like from Daystar or tilt adapters. And some of the new cameras are actually coming with tilt front ends on them. Yeah, I've seen that on the Player One cameras, for yep, example. that's that it. Um, we've got one of the new mono ones due in this week at some point. So um, we'll be interested to see how well that tilt plate works. Yeah, and um, and what it's going to do, you know, whether it cures that problem of Newton's rings. You don't generally get Newton's rings that much with color cameras, and that's because the biomatrix, what separates the colors on the front of the sensor, right. that stops the light bouncing around. Okay. So you don't get that mirror reflection, and then you don't get the problem. But you know, there's not these days. Solar's the. the Really, the world's your oyster. There's so many different filters out there now and different things. I mean, you, your next one's really calcium. Everybody sort of loves um, imaging with calcium. Shows you all of the active areas and uh, sunspots and some quite uh, detailed granulation. Certain uh, calcium units you can even see larger prominences in. Uh, they won't be as detailed as hydrogen alpha uh, prominence, but you, you can see them now. You've also got to remember there's two types of calcium. So you've got one is calcium K, and that's really the more purple um, calcium filter. So more up near the, the purple side. And then you've got your um, H-line, which Daystar uh, came out with a few years back. And that, that's more visually friendly. Um, lots of people can't see cal uh, through calcium filters because their eyes, our eyes gradually deteriorate and that stops us seeing through calcium filters. Um, but the H-line allows you to um, to use it visually as well. So that, that's an option. Okay. Um, you've got sodium now as well. Yep. Um, that produces some quite stable images in, in poorer conditions. Um, very similar to the, the sodium lighting, in a sense, you know, the, the street lamps. Yeah. Uh, those sorts of things, uh, very similar uh, sort of area to that. Okay. But it, they produce some nice images. You get very, very detailed granulation and sunspots with those. Um, probably my favorite is the magnesium. Yeah, I really like that. Um, that gives you a, a cross between really quite a few of the wavelengths looking at it. It seems like there's a little bit of everything in there. There's a little bit of HA, a little bit of um, calcium, and a little bit of sodium and you, you generally see like the connecting structures where filaments start and things like that um and we found a lot of new stuff on the sun that we've not seen before using them magnesium is fairly new so if you're using one of those really you're you're uh, adding to research because nobody knows that much about the magnesium wavelength on the sun that, that's pretty amazing we, and we've talked about this in in the past in other on other episodes um about 
uh, finding, making a discovery or, or contributing to um, yeah. research through uh, pro-am uh, uh, programs. Uh, I, I do know uh, like Christopher Goh was very big on promoting pro, uh, pro-am collaboration yep. with the Juno project. The, are there ongoing programs and projects like that that involve solar? It's- there's not so much on the solar. Um, it is a little bit disappointing. A lot of the, the places sort of keep themselves to themselves, the universities, and certainly in the UK they do. Um, there are lots of these universities these days have access to all of the NASA equipment. So whether it's recorded videos or things like that. So they generally stick on their own and they're using some different wavelengths to what we use. So we might find something in hydrogen alpha and they're not actually using that wavelength, so they don't know what it is. And I've come across that a few times. Um, but there's a lot of groups on Facebooks and, and lots of forums these days. So there's plenty of places if you're after information about an object in your image where um, you know, you'll find that information out. So speaking about Facebook, I know you're very active on Facebook. You have uh, yeah. your Facebook pages, and you are constantly doing solar imaging um, and posting on Facebook on the various groups. So, you know, if people want to see the type of work that Gary does, it's out there. Um, Gary, what's your website? Uh, it, the website's uh, solarsystemimaging.co.uk. Yeah, there's some amazing images on there. Um, You've got some 3D images, yeah, right, which are just that, absolutely stunning. I worked on, yeah, worked on that about three or four years ago, maybe a bit longer now. But that was um, using uh, other etalons with a cork and creating um, really as you get lower and lower in the the band pass for HA, then it, you change the structure so it makes it look more three dimensional. Um, and it really sort of singles it out and picks it out and makes it stand on the sun. Yeah. As it's naturally doing, it's not like we're manipulating it. We're just finding different wavelengths and different information at that, that point in a wavelength. Yeah. It just, it, um, I remember uh, when I saw it, those images, it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah. I, I remember when I posted the first 3D one up and everybody was like, wow. Um, that you know, thinking that you've manipulated it on a computer and not actually realizing that it's a natural thing, it's there. We we've just shifted the wavelength very slightly yeah. um, to be able to to image it, you know. And and double stacking is always hard. The double stacking is not an easy thing. You can buy a dedicated telescope. They generally darken uh, the light coming through quite a lot, and then you you sort of got to up the exposure. So. That always used to make it quite hard on conventional equipment. But probably eight years ago, something like that now, I was working on that idea. Um, and we were doing that with um, uh, Solar Max 90. We had that where we were starting to uh, three, uh, turn things three-dimensional in the imaging. So we've got lots of new new ideas coming up it's just waiting for the sun to be active that, sure. that's the key thing so yeah. we, we've had a, a massive quiet period and every now and then you get a nice little uh, sunspot come along or prominence and you, you run through all of your ideas and just check that you you're still uh, on target yeah but gradually as these big sunspots come along 
and the the solar flares that's what i'm interested in at the moment that's what um is going on in the background really and that's to pick the solar flares up as they're coming through the surface of the sun right um rather than just looking at them exiting the the chromosphere the sun's atmosphere so yeah it's it's challenge and every day is a challenge every day is a challenge with the weather you know or the seeing conditions <laughs> you can get a lovely blue sky yeah. and it's like imaging through a bowl of water sure um you know the jet stream comes in and kicks everything up uh, i mean the last two days we in certainly here in the uk we've got um like a very uh high film of white cloud Okay. And they're now saying on the weather that's uh, uh, sand out of the Sahara Desert's got into the upper atmosphere. So um, there's always a challenge there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know I, we've we've been under a veil of cloud here um, for the past few days, and the weather's been kind of wacky. Last weekend it was uh, 18 degrees C, um, yeah. which was quite nice, right? And... Um, Yesterday it was minus one, so okay. <laughs> it, we, we've got exactly the same coming. It was like twenty today, okay. And uh, by Sunday there's going to be snow. Oh wow! But uh, yeah, spring, so, um, you know, springs are starting up, so hopefully, uh, you know, things will warm up uh, nicely. Um, you know, I mentioned in the beginning of the of the program uh, that Gary um, and I have been working together with uh, courses. And one of the courses that we have put on, uh, well, I say we, uh, Gary has done. Because um, <laughs> I just sat there, in the, <laughs> sat there on the Zoom call um, watching. Um, I can't take any credit for that, but uh, it has been on solar. And there's been some other subjects as well. But, uh, you know, if, if you're interested in learning more about solar imaging um, and, and the actual processing techniques uh, to get into solar imaging and then... I, Gary, you and I talked about doing high resolution as well at some point. Yeah. Right. So, you know, hit, hit <clears throat> me up on the Ontario Telescope and Accessories Facebook page or on the Astro, uh, Astrophotography Podcast Facebook page as well and we'll get you some more information on that. But, you know, this was great. Gary, thank you very much for your, uh, for your time. No problem. And, uh, uh, you know, so it was good. It was good to, it was good to start recording again. It's been so long for myself. Um, you know, the past year has been absolutely bonkers with with uh, the industry as a whole. Um, it's been very busy. Uh, a lot of people getting into the hobby, which is fantastic, uh, but it's caused a lot of strain on on supply. Um, so it's been a little little um, nerve wracking. But I think we're starting to muddle way through it. And uh, uh, hopefully, if if you're listening to this podcast, and I thank you that you are, uh, you've got the equipment you need or um, you know, we can help you out as well to get that equipment. So with that, I'm going to say, Gary, thank you very much for your time. And thank you no for all the great information. And everyone else out there, clear skies. Thanks for subscribing. And we will talk to you very soon.